Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. most important thing we can say all day. Doug and I have been talking about, uh, we, uh, just briefly, I think just once or twice uh, this past week, we talked about the fact with our new parking lot out back, it is dark. <laughs> I mean, like, it is pitch black. Um, and uh, it, it um, I walked out there, I took a picture, and then Heidi had it here um, after, you know, after that day of evening. Um, and so it gets dark at like 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, and to get that person 
saved? And did you get saved? So we would ask somebody, um, you know, we would, in a conversation, maybe we've had these conversations. I have uh, encountered these in lots of different environments. One of the most uncomfortable is at funerals. Because without fail, somebody, we might get this wrong at funerals um, that, that, that have happened. But without fail, somebody is going to come up to me if I'm in a funeral service or in a funeral. Were they saved? And, and, and I'll say, you know, which way? I, I don't know. It depends. Uh, no. uh, you know, it, it depends, you know, on the circumstances. It, it, sometimes I don't know that person and I don't know them. So if somebody I knew, I'd say, you know, well, We're going to try to tackle this in the framework of what does redemption mean? So we're going to try to answer like three questions, and it'll probably take us about two minutes. But um, but we're going to try to answer um, what is redemption? What's the purpose of redemption? And what is God, Jesus's, and our role? There's things I'm going to say that I'm just going to invite you to think about. I'm not going to answer. But as an example, we were taught that in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was perfect. And then there was a rebellion, and everything fell apart, and the enemy rebelled. You know, Satan, and he took a third of the angels, and, and we say a lot of things um, that really aren't as clear in the Bible as we would like them to be. In fact, I would suggest that most of what we've been talking about lately is much, much clearer than the things we were actually clear about So what we say is that as a result of that rebellion where the devil left heaven with a bunch of angels, which it never actually says in the Bible. Right there. Uh, it, it speaks of it poetically in a few books, but it never says that in the Bible. So it, we then say that as a result, God created humanity to restore the earth. just like to pose a question. Do you really think that the enemy has that much control over life? No. Do you really think that the only reason you're here is because God made you to build an army to defeat somebody who just abused you? Salvation is not about heaven and hell. 
it will mess you up. So I spent about 20 minutes just trying to meditate and think about what was I thinking. Um, It was very clear from the message that I needed to get saved. It was very clear also what I was getting saved from. I was not at all clear about what I was getting saved for. But I was very clear about what I was getting saved from. That whole, like, burning forever thing. So, as I made a few notes yesterday, um, I, I, I spent the rest of the day thinking, what in the world have I been waiting for? At the ripe age of six, I'm thinking, I, what have I been waiting for? What is wrong with me? Why didn't anybody tell me? So, at the age of six, I thought, this is a very close call. are not dying and I'm being burned forever. 20 seconds after, I am with Jesus. So I'm thinking like, why didn't you tell me? What is wrong with you people? It all made really clear sense to me that that was was the thing. As the hymn goes, I spent, uh, excuse me, years I spent in vanity and pride caring not my Lord was crucified. Why didn't you tell me? What is wrong? What would have happened if I died moments before? Why hadn't anyone told me about this? I was saved. Shortly after this, at the ripe age of six, I uh, embraced what was the call of God for my life to tell the rest of the world that they were going to burn in hell. At this time, I knew that God, I knew I was supposed to, to preach, but I, I, that's the only message I knew. So I, that had to be the message, right? So now I have to tell everybody else. So uh, at the age of six, um, I, I, I moved pretty quickly. I went from um, heard the message, got saved, people were fine. Um, God really, uh, I, I'm, I, I was so grateful because I thought, it, it was like the light bulb came on. I thought, I've waited 16 years to do this? And so um, I, I got saved, felt the, felt the Lord spoke to me. Um, I had uh, several really miraculous supernatural experiences where God audibly spoke to me. Um, as well as several times I had a really intense psychic dream. Um, and, um, and so those things are what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. So at six years old, I knew I was supposed to do this, whatever it is they think I'm doing. That's what I was supposed to do. I promise you it didn't look like this at six. When I thought it, it looked much, much, much more like Jimmy Swagger. But um, that's what I had in my mind. I was going to either be Jimmy Swagger or Benny Hinn, depending, depending on my shoes. That's really the difference. Um, and uh, and the extent of my toe mopping, um, and so I uh, I I decided that that was going to happen. I then within about three months, um, I got filled with the Spirit in my bed with my dad uh, praying for me um, at the age of six and preached my first message in front of three hundred people when I was about seven or eight. Um, and so I, I really moved along quickly, but it all made very clear sense. But I'd like to make a statement to kick off where I left the churches today. Everyone who has ever been conceived has been included in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus was lifted up, God dragged all of humanity unto himself. And in that, Jesus is the Savior of all about this, though. So what does it mean? How do we get 
think that we pray a prayer, all of a sudden we say the right words, and then, because I can tell you the big thing that blew me away after I prayed this prayer was it was a couple days later I got really, really frustrated because I realized I didn't pray soon enough. See, I thought unless I did that, got really frustrated because I'm like, wait a minute, I might not pray the prayer right, which meant I committed to praying the prayer again like 600 times um, through my life. I probably said the same prayer more times than everybody in this room combined. Every time I would go buy a new Christmas machine, I would have to break it a week later and then go to church and go to the altar. Because somewhere between Tuesday when I wanted to go be on the highway to hell and Sunday when I wanted to get back on the highway to heaven, I had to do what we do. So I had to get faith. So I think the first question is, what does it mean to use faith? Well, let me be really clear. Um, I'm, not be- I'm not suggesting universalism. Universalism means nobody needs to make any distinction or do anything that everybody is going to go to heaven. I'm not necessarily suggesting that. But what I am suggesting is we have short-sold the work of salvation. We have short-sold what redemption really means. And I would like to suggest to you that you... Okay, now that's going to denigrate anybody in here. Please don't do that. Um, I believe that they've perished now. I believe that they've received Jesus' spirit. But what mattered more was what you did after you received it. So let me ask you this. Does somebody who never received Christ or knew him never confess the Lord as Lord, but trust this guy, Jesus, will save them? And let me ask you this. According to the scriptures, one of the really, really interesting things is this also begins to frame what we think Jesus did at the cross. Because at our at the cross, Jesus forgave us all of our sins, right? before the cross, Jesus was already forgiving people of their sins. Remember when Jesus would see a lame person? And when he wouldn't say to you, get up and walk, he would say what? Your sins are forgiven. So if Jesus had to die to make God happy and get your sins forgiven, why was he doing it before the cross? Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. This might frame a little bit differently um, what we really mean when we're talking about salvation. And to whom salvation or redemption is extended. So, 1 Timothy 4, 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. Who's the Savior of all men? So who saved? All men. Especially those that believe. So who's saved? All men. Everybody. It was done. So let me frame it this way. When you accepted, when you prayed the prayer, when you did the deal, right? Whatever it was, you get on your knees. I'm sure there were some echoes here today with the air conditioning on. So if you're sitting in the rain, I'm sorry. Um, Whatever it was, Kevin Cates, I'll explain. 
get that deal in the right way. Yep, that we had to really feel bad about. Like that was pretty much, can we take a hell house and put it in church and then use that to motivate people to go to heaven? That's a great idea. That's a, I mean, like how can you make Friday the 13th applicable to church to where people want to love Jesus? I think that's just a great idea. So according to Timothy, all are saved, especially those that believe. So what he's actually suggesting is the only difference between those that are walking with Jesus and those that aren't is awareness. So let me ask this. But if that is accurate, and I know this message says that, do we need to pray that people will get saved or do we need to pray that our loved ones will become aware? It's done. The work of Jesus, it is not this kind of thing that that we then have to say these right words and all of a sudden God will then accept us because we do the right thing. All it literally is, it was done at the cross and then we actually was done from the incarnation and we then have the opportunity to become aware. He says all are saved, especially those that believe. Isn't that weird? That's how they define salvation. Um, John 14, 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you, and that word is actually everyone, also lives. On the day you all, so anytime there's you, it's actually a, a, a word for all, everyone. All will realize that I'm in the Father. Now, what is the difference? Realizing. Whosoever has my commands and keeps them, this is the one that loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So what is the difference? What is the, 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 the line for where God doesn't want to demonstrate himself? It's just realizing how much he's loved us all along. It's that simple. And, and to me, isn't it interesting? I would, I would honestly say that most of my doctrine about how this works was flat out idolatry. Why, why was it idolatry? What I mean is, it was an idol that was propped up that I felt like I had to serve. That idol was, you've got to say this prayer and do this thing and live like this and be this. The problem was, there's a whole other group of people over here who say, you've got to pray this prayer and do this and live like this. And a group over here that says, you've got to pray this prayer. And, and oh, by the way, as soon as I think this makes me in, I think that makes them out. But if it's just about realizing, what you think we're doing in, in, in that, there's this weird balance where we think that that's actually devaluing the work of the person of the Christ on the cross. It actually isn't. What we have done is, is if we, in the way we've looked at it, it's not that we've given a better value to the cross of Christ. We've given a higher value to the fallibility of humans. Everyone who's ever lived and everyone who will ever live. All. 
John was the one guy since John said that he's that he's it. Jesus said, This voice is his going to the Father who goes and sits upon the right hand. And this voice says, So you're gonna say, Come now, why is it not the judgment of this world? And so judgment only exists. So when was the world judged? When? Don't be 
afraid. Don't be afraid of fear. Don't be afraid of fear. Then he goes on and says, verse 8, be thou, um, excuse me, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, and has given us in Christ, or who has put us in Christ since when? Before the world began. So when were you saved? Before the world began. Wow. Paul better be careful. Charisma Magazine is going to really come after him if he's not really careful. He's going to be considered a heretic. It's going to, everybody's going to praise him. So what Scripture actually teaches is that all have been saved or redeemed, but ongoing choices actually do matter. According to Philippians, we have a present tense, ongoing participation in the Father. Work out what God is doing within us. Even though according to what we have seen, we didn't do anything in the accomplishment of this salvation, our ongoing experience is vitally important. The first thing we must do is see salvation as Jesus and the early fathers intended it, to separate it from afterlife issues. You are welcome to have strong afterlife convictions, but those cannot impact or inform your convictions or theology of Jesus. I would like to see that committed to the point in my Christian walk where I would make error and fault and fail to see it. I was more confident in my But in reality, what Jesus says, what uh, Paul teaches pretty radically, if I can say so, Romans 5 is incredible with this, where he actually talks about the fact that everything has been done. And so all have been saved and the foundation of God in Christ has to come into that. And so literally all it requires is our active participation to become aware, to realize how good his love is and say, oh yeah, I'll take it. It's not been about whether I'm in or out. How many times have you had to pray the salvation prayer, the sinner's prayer, more than once because you felt like you lost it? Anyone in the room? Yep, yep, okay, just making sure. What do you think you could do that would lose it? Is any sin that you could, you could commit in any way capable of eclipsing the restorative work of Jesus? that all weren't saved, and I mean all, from the time that we, uh, from the time that Jesus restored everything, if we don't believe that salvation was then and done and that all were saved, are we act, aren't we actually suggesting that the sin of Adam is more powerful than the restoration of Christ? So guess what? Whether we want to believe it or not, we believe in universalism. What the universal universalism we believe in is not, uh, uh, we haven't had universalism that everybody is automatically born into heaven, but we have been taught that everybody's automatically born into hell. So you are universalist whether you knew it or not. And the other problem was, is there was, then they came up with this really interesting doctrine about 
somebody do a wreck. I, I think it's really interesting because we have to see the salvation as a wreck. And some people would say, well, are you not, are you saying you don't have to do anything to be saved? No, I'm not necessarily saying that. Actually, um, the way Baxter Cambridge says it, really interesting, I made notes about how he says it differently. So when somebody would actually say, don't you have to do something to be saved? What Baxter Cambridge actually says is, yes, and we've done it. We killed Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, I will take your death and enter into the dark darkness of your abyss and shine my light and be my witness. The only thing that needs to happen for you to enter into salvation is that you be saved. And because of that, he redeemed everything after his death and can enter into your heart and be your witness. everyone saved? Well, that depends on the time. Is salvation for all? Yes. Do you have to become aware of the impact of it? Of course you do. 1 John 1, 2 says, for he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins. See, what we think is the atoning work of Christ is only effective if you got saved. Right? Good question. It's kind of like a membership out there where like, well, yeah, there is a membership, but until you pay the dues, you don't get the reward for the membership. We are very transactional. Quid pro quo is how we see salvation. You just do. And Jesus actually taught, and what John, in the only the way that the beloved could behave himself, says, don't just for your sins, but for the whole world. So who's saved? at this point that we need to address what Paul said to Timothy. Since before the world began, your salvation was secure. We call this election. Now, political election. Uh, but the doctrine of election. I'm going to give a quick um, kind of, um, this would be something we'd talk about in theology class. So I'm going to give you a quick and something you'll think about. Since before the world began, your salvation was secure. The doctrine of election came from a man named John Calvin. He had an in fact, I would say one of the strongest impacts on the way we view God and our soteriology and our doctrine of salvation. First, we must remember that John Calvin was a lawyer. The two people that most impacted the way we view salvation, getting saved, and relationship with God were both lawyers by background. So how do you think, yeah, sorry. So you know you can't trust them. So how do we think they're going to propose salvation? In legal terms. That's how they view it. And so what happened is, that it's amazing because Josh and I talked about this last night. Once again, we have, we have to get all this stuff that you guys don't get to live with. So um, one of the things that I was joking with her is how in our uh, theology, St. Augustine, so, uh, Augustine, excuse me, um, is kind of the template in Western theology. He is the guy that gave us how we see hell, how we see heaven, how we see salvation, all the big ones we got from him. Obviously, interestingly enough, um, the rest of the church in the East actually doesn't even call him St. Augustine because the way they viewed him was he was kind of a rat general. They actually call him, in fact, it's still in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they call him Blessed Augustine because they recognize the fact that he was, he was a leader in the 
but they also say that at the time, the people that formed the Nicene Creed said most of his theology was actually closer to heresy than it was good Bible theology. That's the guy we get most of our stuff from. You want to know why? Because he was a great writer. He wrote in beautiful language, which appeals to us in a way. It doesn't. It's not about the content. It's about how well you preach it. So it appeals to us in a way. Like, yeah, that sounds good. And because most of our framework is going to channel emotion. What I mean by channel, it's like the justice system. We like that. We like that justice system kind of stuff. So what happens is most of his doctrine is channel in nature, meaning you do wrong, you get punished. And in our Western culture, we like that. Right? Bad guy gets it in the end. Everybody's happy. Black hat, you're out. White hat wins. It's just the way it is. We like that in our Western. How many Western? It's the reason we can count on one hand the amount of John Wayne movies where he dies. 500 movies he dies in. Three. Why? Because he wants to get to heaven at the end. And so what happens is John Calvin comes along and begins to propose this, but he proposes it legally. He's just a lawyer. So he's, he's doing this litigation and trying to channel something where God, God is the judge. Judging the evil, and there's punishment for your sin, and there's this channel thing where it's quid pro quo. Well, that's because you've got to pay the dues in order to get the goods. So John Calvin comes along and says this, and we have a strong emphasis on this in the West. He talks something called predeterminism. Predeterminism means that God has already predetermined what's going to happen. Now, interestingly enough, that is actually where we get most of our doctrine about God's original control. So everything that's good and everything that's bad is always God's decree that needs to make it happen. So when bad things happen and our society gets cancer, we say, well, it must be God's will. That's a lie. I'm, I'm going to say it in its closest, most factual way you'll ever hear. That's just a lie. And we get that from Calvin. Now, I, 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 I understand what he was trying to do because he was trying to deal with what Tennyson said about salvation being for the elect, meaning that there are, it's, it's already done. He was trying to answer the question about who the elect was. Because what he was trying to say is, from the idea of predetermination, he then drew out and said, well, it must mean that God's in perfect control, because the judge is having a say. He's a lawyer. Everything the judge says stands, right? So what he's saying is, God is in all control. And that means if some go to heaven and some go to hell, then God is already predetermined who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's Christianity. So what they actually begin to teach is that God predestined the majority, actually some would propose by Calvinist theorists, as the majority Christians of all created beings on the earth. That's the guy that framed all these things out. So it's very problematic because from this, we actually then arrive at this other really weird idea because Jesus said he came to save all of mankind. So is, how is Jesus trying to save people that God has already said he can't save? So is Jesus and God at odds about who gets to get saved? So then they came up with this other really weird theology called limited atonement. Limited atonement says, yes, salvation is for all, but it's only for all of the ones God has said can get saved. Limited
limited agreement means the only people Jesus worked was limited to those that God has already said are allowed to be saved. So this is the answer that we're trying to answer the question of who can be in and who can be out and how and who comes up with this. And it's they couldn't imagine the salvation really could be anybody. So they actually begin to argue about this. So Jesus only died, or so, so they said Jesus died only for the people God had predetermined to go to heaven. So they came up with this answer they were trying to make. So then they come up with this idea of God not committing come up with the doctrine of limited atonement, meaning Jesus died for all, but it was limited to those uh, God the Father predetermined as the elect, I guess, to be saved. This raised steam. Why would God say, don't commit murder as if you had a decision, yet have predetermined that you're going to be a murderer? You see where this gets messy? Then he starts saying that God already has the plan already there. And he's determined what's going to happen. He tells you to not sin, but has created you to be predestined to be a sinner. Isn't that wild? So that's where uh, John Wesley, we, we know and love John Wesley, at the time actually said that Calvin's God was worse than the devil. He said the God of Calvin is worse than the devil. He said, at least the devil is predictable. We know he only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The God of Calvin sometimes comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and other times he comes to save us. But look, we have to look deeper into what Calvin was trying to do. We have to realize that he was trying to address a specific question. His question was, how can I be sure of salvation? His answer in election was that salvation security is not in myself. It's not something I can't do my godly thing to get. He was trying to answer that question because here's a good question. Because what ultimately he's get, trying to come up with is, okay, if salvation is not in of ourselves, we don't look for a strength in our own ability. If you do that, as soon if you look for it in your own ability, as soon as you have a bad day, you lost salvation. So he's trying to answer the question about how is it possible that some that I can what is my salvation secure by? So he's saying within this that our assurance is found in one thing, Jesus. The love of God demonstrated through Jesus. This actually then morphs into predestination. It's about being locked into a certain what? Bit, hook, line, and sinker. So we see things like we're in control, we're in control, we're in control. And then we look at children who have parental disease and try to give unscriptural answers about how to parent your child. Like somebody needed a hug. Next, we have to understand that there is an element of salvation that comes in the incarnation of Christ out through the cross. Stick with me because we're almost done. But this is, this is my favorite part. So if you've been bored so far, just shake yourself. Because uh, this is a good part. So uh, next we have to understand the element of salvation that comes through the incarnation and not the cross. So we have to understand that the work of salvation or the atonement, the redemption of Jesus, was not exclusively just through him dying. How many of you have been taught that the reason for Jesus' life was his death? Why did Jesus come to the earth? To die on the cross. doesn't say for God so loved the world that he killed his only begotten son. That's a different 
why was he born a baby? Let me, let me give you the details of my question. If Jesus is the second Adam, and the only purpose is for him to die, was Adam born a baby? had to be an adult that died or whatever age God saw fit that he would send him to die in that case. Why did he have to be born a baby? He could have been born a 30-year-old man and crucified the next day if the only point of his life was the cross. So what I would like to suggest to you is that if the point of Jesus' life was only his death, why did he need to be a baby in the first place? The beauty is this. God, the creator of all things, decided that the only way to redeem all of humanity, including our death, was to inhabit all of it. So Jesus can only redeem what he assumes. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to explain what I mean. Jesus can only redeem what he assumes. So he assumed our physical body so he could redeem it. He assumed our carnal mind so that he could redeem it. He assumed all of who we are, mind, soul, and spirit, so that he can redeem it. And in the end, he assumes our death so that he can redeem it. the link 
between all of creation and the creator the moment he conceived it. So think about this. For all of humanity, we were taught that contact between imperfect humanity and the holy God was prior to his first creation. Right? As soon as you as a human touched God, I'm almost done. As soon as you as a human touched God, you're dead. Right? So, interestingly enough, we've been taught this for all of time. Throughout time, in the scriptures, we find the thought that as soon as a human connects with God, they die. Further, we find the thought that our brokenness cannot contact God because of its perfection. And anyone who is unclean that touches someone clean causes that one to become unclean. In the Old Testament, we see this, right? Where somebody with with leprosy touches, is not allowed to touch somebody that's clean. Why? Because the clean one then becomes leprous. And we use our framework of who God was as perfect perfection of God to define this. So as soon as someone, this is why we say all these things about we as Christians have to be separate from the world. Because we think we're defining who God is. Well, God is separate from our sin. Interestingly enough, that's been the framework throughout all of the scriptures. They thought, Moses thought, if I see God in extremis, what's going to happen? Die. We've been taught this. Jesus actually comes and shows us the opposite. Guess what I mean by that? If that was the case, Mary would have exploded. I mean, I'm just saying, all of God, either Jesus was all of God or he wasn't. Which if he wasn't, we've got a whole nother theology going on. Either he was all of God or he wasn't. So if it is that God in his perfect holiness touching humanity will destroy humanity because of our imperfection, then Mary couldn't have worked. But because, and then you get this weird stuff where Mary's perfect. And so if Mary's perfection worked, then that's not the case. It's not the case. The whole thing that Jesus came to show us is he's the link between creation and creator. And interestingly, he says, no. When the unclean touches the clean, the clean doesn't then become unclean. Jesus came to show us as the link that when he, as the clean, touches the unclean, they become clean. Jesus came to show us that when somebody touched the hem of his garment, they became like him, not he became like them. It was our perspective all along that our perfection had to be, or God's perfection had to be kept separate from our brokenness because his perfection would kill our brokenness. Actually, what happens is his perfection cures our brokenness. And in Jesus' incarnation, he demonstrates this. He demonstrates the fact that he would touch lepers and they would become clean. So literally, Jesus came to show us that he never was someone to punish sin, but to cure it. To cure it. That's what Jesus came to show us. He says, watch my life. When broken people touch me, they don't be- I don't become unclean. They become clean. He empowers us to do the same in the redemption. Jesus encounters our sin. He encounters our broken humanity, and he doesn't become broken. He heals brokenness. In Christ, we recover. We redeem step by step as a cumulative humanity. Here's the really wild thing, and this is what we'll talk about maybe next week, is that we actually become restored as a cumulative humanity through Jesus. We have put such a big stamp on after Adam, everybody did the same. And yet we think 
the same wouldn't be true of everyone who's been cut down. So think about that. And he says it this way. I have come, starting with childhood, moving into awkward teenage years, to deal with the rejection, to heal the rejection we experience at that age. He embraces our mind to heal our mind. He embraces our body to heal our body. St. Gregory of Nancy says it this way. We don't get saved. We're already saved. We get married. chapter 5, hope and grace, he capitalizes them by saying because Jesus is hope in body. Jesus is grace in body. Grace and hope existed in this world before God put those things in place, but Jesus embodied them to show us they were there always. So, this is going to be our springboard for um, the next couple sermons, just saying. Um, but I would like to at least at least suggest to you to be con- that's that's what salvation is. Now we'll, maybe next week we'll talk about what does saving faith look like. What does salvation sound like in our lives? What do we lean towards? Okay, so I would like to suggest to you as you're praying, think about when you pray for your loved ones. How many times have you had to get get somebody to pray for you? Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.blog.com.